This is Discussions on the Firewater Network, where we talk to those crafting the future of the spirits industry. And now, here's your host. This is Zachary Farley. Today, I'm speaking with Tom Burklow of the New Deal Distillery in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for joining me today, Tom. Zach, pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure for me to be here in your beautiful facility. So, Tom, tell me about your distillery. What are you building out here in New Deal, or what have you built out here at New Deal? Well, we've built a lot. We've actually been around for 11 years now, making us one of the pioneers. We've built a little bit of everything. I love exploring craft, making things. Started with vodka to learn our craft, made gins, have you know, three or four different whiskeys in the barrel. I like playing a lot. We have some, you know, bitter liqueurs, Amaro inspired. I'm making a sochu for Japan. I mean, I guess anything wow. that can be made, I, I want to try making it and I want to try making it well. And once I've made it well, then, you know, maybe I'll sell it. Okay. <laughs> but you wait till it's just right before you put it in the bottle. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, I take, I take pride in what I'm doing. I mean, I, I don't want to sell anything that I'm not really excited about. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. I really uh, want to get in more in depth into uh, how you're willing to try everything, how this equipment behind you really can be used to make such a diverse product line. It doesn't just have to be vodkas or, and it doesn't just have to be whiskeys. You really can try a little bit of everything. Well, just on a little technical note. So to make okay. vodka, you actually do need true vodka columns. Mm-hmm. Actually, the equipment for vodka making and the equipment for whiskey or brandy making are really almost two separate types of stills. Yeah. That's not really well understood. Hmm. And so it's actually an expensive commitment to, you know, to make a vodka um, versus a whiskey where you just need a pot still versus a column still. So we've actually have a little bit of both here. Our showpiece is a beautiful Christian Carl still that we've had for a few years. Another still made by a nice local company. Um, in Oregon, then a bunch of stills hmm. we've made ourselves. <laughs> really, you made some of the stills yourselves? <laughs> it goes back to that, you like to play, you like to craft things? Well, when we started, I mean, when I started back in uh, 2004, we got our first license. Ooh, we the had dark ages of uh, craft distilling? Dark ages, I call it the wilderness. Okay, the wilderness. The wilderness. <laughs> everyone was lost? There was, well, there was, there was no everyone, it was just us. And mm-hmm. In fact, in the east side in Portland, we were the only distillery. We were in a 10 by 12 foot room across the street, and we had one little still that we spent $3,000 on, and we just started learning. And wow. So we spent a couple of years learning, and I would say it took about five, five, six years before I finally said to myself, you know, I kind of know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, like, like a journeyman in a trade. It's like, you know, I've seen enough that this is all starting to make sense. Yeah. Well, what kind of drew you to it then during the time of the wilderness? You weren't, you're not a third generation distiller, I assume. <laughs> you... I'm, a, I'm a first generation drinker first. Okay, drinker first. All right. <laughs> and then... I'm a, you know, as I like to say, I came at it from the consumer side. Yeah. So nowadays people come into our tasting room and say, God, this is great. I want to do this. Uh, I had no really inspirations other than one day I woke up and said, you know what? I want to make, I want to make spirits. I want to make vodka. I want to make whiskey. And just out of nowhere, it just hit me. Huh. And I always take credit. I mean, I give Portland the credit because we make everything here. You see the beer and the wine. And one day it's just like, why aren't we making this? Mm -hmm. And then... I tried to figure out how to do it, and it was very, well, back in the wilderness, there was no roadmaps, nothing. So it was just years of like, how do you start doing this? Yeah. Well, how did you start doing it? I'm sure when you went to the city of Portland in 2004 and said, I want to open up a distillery, they probably looked at you like, what? Well, <laughs> have they, they probably never dealt with an application before for a craft distillery. Well, there is... There is um, Clear Creek is one of the true um, pioneers and forefathers, and you know Steve McCarthy started that in the '80s. So there was okay. one distillery, and I think, as far as I can tell, Clear Creek, St. George, and Jermaine Robon are like th- the three first kind of original craft distilleries in America, and they all go back to the '80s. Okay, so it's not like it hadn't been done before, but there was a large gap. But certainly, when I did my federal and state licensing. I remember the OSC person coming in and looking at our little 10 by 12 foot room, asking what we're going to do. I said, hey, we're going to make vodka. He goes, all right, and walked away. I mean, Whoa, there was okay. nothing else to say. Yeah. <laughs> they, were, they hadn't seen enough applications yet to really be skeptical about your plans or anything. They're like, well, it meets all the requirements. So yeah, it, was was, an easier, it was an easier process back then because there wasn't such a glut of applications. Oh, absolutely. And, and now I think they're overwhelmed. The fire marshal has decided that maybe they should pay attention. Oh, yeah, maybe. Maybe. And maybe there should be a certain <laughs> level of professionalism in this industry, which I agree there should be. Oh, yeah, it was, 
Well, the TTB itself was also a little more um, hard-nosed back then. Okay. So they were, I, when I first did the application, they were, I was like calling them up going, hey, what do I need to, what do I need to put on there? And they're like, you need to tell us what you're going to do. Well, what are my options? I can't tell you that. You just need to tell us what you're going to do. <laughs> oh, wow. But, but now, but now you know, God bless them. They're a little more customer friendly. They realize, hey, there's, you know, back when I was doing, I think there was 20. Mm-hmm. You know, 20 applications nationwide for craft distilleries. And now, last I heard, 1,500, 2,000. Yeah. The workload's not going away. So I think they've decided they have to, they have to reach out and help this industry grow too. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's one thing I've heard from a lot of people who are just getting started now is that the TTB actually is very receptive to mm-hmm. say, I mean, they don't always work as quickly as everyone would like them to be working because right. they have a huge backlog and are understaffed. But if you call them up and talk to them today, they're happy to uh, speak with you and work with you. No, everybody I've yeah. worked with, I mean, in all bureaucracies has been helpful. But mm-hmm. as you said, the process sometimes is glacially slow. Yeah. You know, I know that the amount of wine labels that come through too kind of slows down everyone also. Do, do you work with a consultant? Did, I'm sorry, did you work with a consultant when you were going through your application or was it just you sat down with a, some vodka on the rocks and just started working through all the paperwork that had to be done? Oh, it was completely DIY. Yeah. I mean, there was, nowadays people have the ADI forums, the ADCA or the ADSA as it's called now. There are so many resources. There are other distilleries actually, you know, consulting. Mm-hmm. When we started from idea in 2001 to license in 2004, it was, I mean, literally a, the first year was like, we don't even know who we need to talk to. Yeah. And it was just figuring it out on our own. So mm-hmm. the solution was, what is the simplest, stupidest thing we can do? Let's license a 10 by 12 foot room to be a distillery. Okay. And I, I, I believe we were the smallest licensed distillery in America at 120 square feet. Wow. <laughs> we had one little still. We didn't know how to use it. And it was like, hey, we're going to learn. Mm-hmm. That's, well, I mean, as we sit in your facility now, what growth you've been through? Because <laughs> this is definitely not 120 square foot space any longer. No, no. We have a 5,000 square foot distillery now. We, re- we purchased this building about uh, two and a half years ago. I mean, I feel very fortunate. Starting, starting when I did early before pretty much almost everybody else except the complete original pioneers. Yeah. We had years to learn, starting with $3,000, able to bootstrap from there and slowly learn the craft hmm. and develop as we went was great. But now I look around and I'm not saying it's wrong, but now you see people starting distilleries with, you know, $2 million, $5 million, right. you know, $20 million. And I'm jealous that I don't have five or $10 million, mm-hmm. but I'm also having the lessons of like, you know, learning everything the hard way. Yeah. You've, <laughs> you you literally had to build this brand. You didn't just get to start with a beautiful equipment space and all the room you could ever use. You had to build up into that and, and expand yourself. Right, to get we had there. to learn yeah. all aspects, the making, the equipment. Hmm. You know, we didn't go to someone and say, hey, tell us what we need. Yeah. We, we made a lot of mistakes early on in terms of equipment and process and, you know, learn the hard way. And then that experience must pay off today when you do a run and you taste something and it's a little bit off you kind of know the process in and out so you can find you you can self-diagnose kind of what's happening with a particular run or if a still isn't working the way it's supposed to you can troubleshoot it and you really have an intimate knowledge of every piece of your production i actually I actually do feel that i feel like i have an instinct mm-hmm. and even today i i wouldn't even call myself people like to say i'm the master distiller yeah you know and i feel like maybe in another another 10 15 years i may i may say that okay but i feel like you know, I have a lot of instincts from just doing run after run. Like mm-hmm. I'm still, I'm still the person that tastes every batch to make sure that it's done right. Yeah. Okay. So if it doesn't taste right, you just just one palate to blame. <laughs> one palate to blame. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. I mean, I kind of think that's what craft is all about. Is that you know? Yeah. I'd like. I'm glad you said that because that's one. Th- I would really like to know. You know, you've been in this game for so long now. I mean, it's only been 15 years, but in uh, in the that's a long time in craft distilling. The word craft is thrown around by large labels, small labels, well capitalized, poorly capitalized. Everyone wants a piece of the craft or the handmade market, and your products are handmade, and they you, your your stills were handmade. Yeah. What does this word craft really mean to you? I think I think craft is an evolving term, and and. And I think it does run the risk of not meaning anything. Mm-hmm. But for me personally, what I think of as craft is, you know, a passion in the making of it. And really, I don't think you can have a passion in the making of it unless sort of like the business hands and the craft hands are the same person. 
you know, think design build or think think of a chef owned restaurant versus a chain restaurant. A high end chain restaurant can make beautiful food, can have high quality, can be you know something that you can rely on. Yeah, you know, but but it's probably there's probably an accountant deciding you know hey we need to make these choices. Mm-hmm. Whereas like a chef owned restaurant can be passionate and say I really want to please myself and I'm going to go out on a limb and yes I'm not going to give you the same thing every time. I'm mm-hmm. going to you know. You know, this year I'm going to do this. This year I'm going to do that. But I think is that that freedom for that passion to actually make things is what drives you know, you know, new things and new flavors and new trends. Okay. And probably when you're driven by passion, you're probably not going to be as rich as someone who has a you know a franchise and a plan. So mm-hmm. you really you really need to have the the makers and the owners kind of be the same people. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's more of a, a business model with passion. Then, of course, there's also, you know, what are your methods? The methods can be so many, but, you know, you should be able to tell your customers what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, so I guess your original mission statement, as I understand it, when you first opened was to make was to put one bottle of high quality vodka on store shelves, have one customer buy it. And then change the world. <laughs> now that you've accomplished all of that, and now that the world is a different place, what what is kind of what, you know what what is your second act? You know what was it like? So you got you you had a very modest beginning. You wanted to just sell one bottle and please one person and hope it kind of sparked something. Now that you kind of are in this larger space and you do have a full product line, how do you keep that original passion still intact? How do you make sure that you're still on the cutting edge? Well, I think. I think we still have that original passion because that whole mission at the beginning was the fact that this is this is sort of you know serious play. Mm-hmm. Also, it's that we don't know. I mean, I, I don't. I think business plans are silly. <laughs> I think planning is silly. I think it's like, hey, I, I want to explore something. Like I'm yeah. I'm fascinated by this and I want to explore. The original mission of selling one bottle to one stranger is just like, oh, that's just a statement of we have to learn these basic things to do that. Mm-hmm. But it, it's still. You know, now it's just about the making. Like, I'm really excited about whiskey. Whiskey is a almost a generational effort. You can't, unless you start with millions of dollars, you can't just barrel, you know, $10,000, $20,000, $30,000 worth of whiskey you know, mm-hmm. every month for the next three to five years. Yeah. Unless you happen to have all that money sitting there. Right. But I'm just having fun making stuff. And it's still, you know... I think in changing the world, like when we started, I just hated marketing. It's kind of like <laughs> just craft. I mean, it comes back to what I think Portland's about. You know, it's about making things, you know, and being part of your community. I mean, that never changes. That's fun. Yeah. And you are part of Distillery Row here now. You you really are part of a community of distillers, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. So Distillery Row, I mean, originally I was the first distillery in Southeast Portland and then 2004, then around 2007 and eight, a bunch of other distilleries started mm-hmm. showing up. And being Portland, we kind of learned from the craft brewers, just work together and, and build the industry of these small, you know, artisan DIY craft, whatever you want to call them, companies, and just yeah. kind of learn from each other. Mm-hmm. And so it became natural that people started calling it Distillery Row. Okay. And working together, and you know, I mean, we don't go next door and borrow a cup of sugar. Often it's borrowing, you know, fifty pounds of flour, or maybe the <laughs> yeah. forklift if it's down. But, okay. But yeah, it's nice to have that support there, and and you all, it's kind of a rising tide lifts all boats kind of a philosophy. Right, and and the, and really, it comes from the craft brewers. You know, people hmm. ask. You know, how did the you know how did this industry come about? I believe that craft distilling could not have existed prior to craft brewing. Okay. Craft brewing really laid down a lot of the the ideas and frameworks and philosophies that made craft distilling possible. Mm-hmm. It kind of prepped the the consumer's mind to tr- to give a small label a chance something that they never heard of that there could be a different flavor. It, beer doesn't have to only taste one way. Vodka Absolutely. doesn't only have to taste one way. Yeah. You know, and craft brewers definitely made a product that was clearly better than the factory brands. Mm -hmm. Now, we have a slightly different struggle in that Kentucky and Scotland are making excellent products. Yes. And so it's not not the same as the craft brewers where, oh, the factory beers have fallen down on the job. Mm -hmm. I I believe, I'm not going to mention a big brewer's name, but, you know, I believe that they they stop caring about their customers. Okay. Yeah. And and, and craft brewing really did bring in... You know, oh, you can put hops in beer, and beer can taste right. like something instead of it just being the same watered down product. Uh, not to whomever I'm speaking about, and but I think to your point, craft distilling needs to be something more than just a small label, small batch, because 
all the big boys out there, the, uh -huh. the huge corporations, they have a bourbon for every flavor profile. If a, if a customer wants something, then they can create that for that customer. And people aren't really complaining about the quality. You know, craft has to come in and be something more than just craft. And oh, I think I, one of the differentiators you do mm -hmm. is New Deal is really a farm to table distillery, isn't it? You work with local farmers here. Um, not not completely across the board. Like okay. so, on our New Deal vodka, we're switching to Oregon grains. Yeah, from a, a farm down in Eastern Oregon. But you know, a lot of the you know, well, we work with local farmers, work with local companies. Mm -hmm. Most of our grain for our whiskey we get from um, Bob's Red Mill, or oh. you know, the, the the malting houses that anybody else would get. Okay. So it's like yes, we source grains like we would a brewery. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's kind of you know when people say farm the table, I'm like, well, you know. I don't know. I don't always know the farmer. I would love yeah. to. That's also kind of to, to completely control that whole process requires a lot of money too. Right. I mean, I'll give you an example. We're making a sochu for Japan right now, um, and that's huh. you're making it to export to Japan, or yes. really? Yeah. And so you know, we have cedar boxes where we do a koji, you know, koji fermentation of the rice beds to create the enzymes to do the starch conversion. Yeah. But you know, I get my rice from California. Okay. You know, so it's not like I don't want to be like, oh, you know. Some people definitely have gone the extra step to build, like, you know, personal relationships with the farmers. Mm -hmm. I just want to make sure that we're, you know, we're sourcing good ingredients. Okay. Yeah. And, and by working with local companies and at least to source it from, there's a certain level of familiarity with them and you can tell them what they need. And Right. Well, for Bob, like Bob's Red Mill in terms of getting grains, yeah. you know, you know, it's probably grain from, you know, across the West, but, you know, at least I know that it's non-GMO and, mm -hmm. you know, some of it's organic or not, you know. I guess I'm cautious because people use these words in very right. specific ways. I think, you know, consumers should know, you know, our process and our ingredients, mm -hmm. you know, it's like a organic, we're actually an organically certified facility, but I haven't, okay. I haven't bothered to, you know, create a lot of organic products for the simple mm -hmm. reason. This kind of goes back to what we are saying about big companies. It's quality first. It's like drinking yeah. shouldn't be so political. It's, you know, Friday night at 11 PM, no one actually cares about saving the world. <laughs> you know, they just want to know that they're drinking something good. Mm -hmm. hmm. Well, so did you set out originally to open up an urban distillery to be open, you know, around where people live <laughs> like you are right here? Was that kind of your goal or did you just happen to fall upon this space and, and decide to do it? Well, being, being from Portland for a long time, yeah. I mean, it just seemed, I mean, my inspiration is sort of the artisan, you know, you know, businesses, the coffee makers, the wine makers, the beer makers, the, the roasters, the chocolatiers, whatever. You know, so to me, inner industrial southeast of Portland just seemed like the natural place yeah. to start a business. This is the warehouse, of course. I mean, I guess it was almost like I couldn't conceive of starting it anywhere else. Hmm. Would you say that there are some good pluses to being here? I imagine your foot traffic is fantastic by being in an urban location. It's easy for people to find you. Well, I mean, an urban location is awesome. I mean, yeah. being where people can find you, having a, you know, other distilleries in a distillery row, making it almost like a wine region you can visit. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think if you're starting in the middle of nowhere, you know, you're not going to get that direct connection. Because, I mean, a craft distillery, you you know, people can come in and see how we make it. You know, they can walk over there, see the rye fermenting, yeah. you know, see the brandy in the tanks, you know, look at the barrels. They can see all that. And and that, that viscerally helps them see what they're, you know, mm -hmm. what what they're you know getting when they get something in the bottle. Yeah. Do you have any issues by being in a more densely packed area about getting deliveries to you, like in pallet trucks get in here and that kind of stuff? Or are there any cons to being in a in Well, so far not. City? We're we're in what is called the inner industrial east side of Portland. Okay. But I mean, as Portland's gotten successful as a place for people to move, I mean the warehouses are being torn down, the condos are going up. Yeah. And I know that someday there's gonna be a tension between you know, person living in their condo a few blocks away and the fact that, you know, I need a semi-truck to come here and, you know, right. pop off glass and grain and pick up product. Mm -hmm. But so far, so far, so good. So far, so good. All right, cool. Well, so just, you know, looking back, what do you think your biggest hurdle was to getting started? I know it was a while ago, but... <laughs> the biggest hurdle? Yeah. And also the biggest blessing was complete ignorance. Okay. I mean, when, when I just woke up one day and said I was going to make spirits... Not knowing was great, and I don't I don't know what the hurdle was. I mean, probably, and also the ignorance was we probably did a lot of things. I mean, in a way that was slow, but but we also we allowed ourselves. We didn't have a financial plan, really. So 
we didn't really have to judge ourselves on a monetary basis. It was just hmm. learning. So I guess there was a moment we said we're going to start this thing and we started this thing. Yeah. <laughs> and then you had to learn from page one all the way up and write the book yourself in a lot of ways. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I guess on some, you know, uh, you, 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 you're not a st strong believer in marketing and, and you, you just want an honest product out there and a high quality one, but you do need to sell your product, obviously, to keep the lights on and the distillery running. How do you promote yourself? How do you get the word out about New Deal's products? Well, after 10 years, we finally decided that maybe we should think about marketing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I know. I, I, I firmly believed in, in one drinker at a time. Obviously, having a tasting room where people can come in and you know, have a, a personal relationship with you. You know, they can talk to you and say, hey, I'm the person making it. But I kind of want to go back to something you said earlier about, you know, craft distilleries versus, you know, the, the bourbon companies who are making quality products. Yeah. I've always, I've always said, you know, local will get you the first drink. Quality will get you the second hmm. drink. So I, th I think I've always considered us on the model of like a clear creek where it's, we just need to worry about making good products and just build a reputation slowly and organically. We're not trying to, oh, you know, hey, I need to sell, you know, 10,000 cases in California. Let's, you know, let's go on a billboard campaign or something. Yeah. I, I want to build products that, you know, have a reputation and a reason for existing and they're not just a, a marketing thing. So, so I think just making quality over time <laughs> is, is a way to get a story out. Clear Creek mm -hmm. did it. I don't think they spent that much money. But kind of to the question of like by what a marketer would think is, you know, we have had kind of deconstructed, you know, simple labels that just said, hey, this is what it is. But the further you go away, you know, maybe you can throw, you know, a little more imagery in there to make it a little more fun. But, yeah, you got to think when this bottle is in, you know, Shanghai or Chicago, it needs to carry more of the story. Mm -hmm. But I still think you can, you can do that. But, I mean, it's really just, you know, understanding who you are and presenting that. And then hopefully quality is what's going to get you a long-term customer. Yeah. So marketing can only get you so far. If people don't like what's in the bottle, you're never going to have that return customer again. So almost your, your best marketing is the product itself and what's inside of it. Absolutely. Although mm -hmm. I, I, do, I do believe that this industry is going through kind of a shift where the customers do, are expecting a little more polished. Mm -hmm. you know, they, it's funny. Customers do have expectations, but they don't want it to look like the big boys. Yeah. And I think, I think there's always going to be this tension in our industry about you know, is there a look of craft distilling? But, you know, mm -hmm. the beauty of it is, you know, there's a lot of different personality and hopefully the personality will come through. Yeah. So do you find yourself, to get that first drink in, in front of someone, do you or your team, you know, really pound the pavement, get out there, try to get in front of bar owners, no, I'm too busy. I'm, I'm too busy drinking to do that. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I've thought yeah. about it. I mean, first of all, we had to build enough capacity to actually... You know, for many years, we were literally at capacity. Mm -hmm. We were selling everything we could make. Wow. And so the whole concept of like trying to push more sales was just almost silly. Okay. It's like, okay, we really need to, to grow just as, you know, the ability to make something. So mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, I mean, we finally got our bigger stills. So instead of okay. running seven little stills seven days a week, almost all day long, wow. we now have a little extra capacity. And at this point, we're like, okay. Let's go out there and, you know, let's, let's tell our story more. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like. Also, there's a lot more competition now. You know, people right. are opening up. I still think it comes down to the quality. You know, we support nonprofits. We've always been a part of our community. Yeah. So I, I almost feel like it's not an issue in Portland. It's just like, how do you sell a product in another part of the country? Right. And I think the best way, again, is, is I, you know, quality products, unique flavors, mm -hmm. um, just, just having a quality that people can recognize. I, I do want to say one thing is I yeah. think we're not going to be Kentucky. We're not going to make Kentucky bourbon, but there are, there are ways we can make products that you've never heard of before. I think our wildcat moonshine is an example. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, we're going outside a lot of the traditional metaphors. And so we can, we can bring things out there that no one's thought of because the big guys have no flexibility. They need, they have to make the same bottle over and over again because that's yep. what their market demands. And you guys can, do whatever you can, you can take risks and make a ginger liqueur or a coffee liqueur and things that, yeah, <laughs> the big guys just wouldn't even think about. I would really like to talk about now kind of stepping away from the 10,000 foot view mm -hmm. of how you run your distillery and really get to the microscopic level. Let's talk about what, let's talk about what you do put in bottles here. <laughs> what, what is your portfolio? Um, we started with a couple of vodkas that we used to make off of 
small copper pack columns back in the day when our technology was primitive. Oh yeah. Not not a big 30 foot column, but just a shorter one packed with packed with copper, but yeah. being shorter it mean it meant we had to run it slower. So Okay. I mean, our output was I mean, probably measured in liters per day. Wow. And then now we can produce a lot larger batches with that. We have a couple of custom stills built for gin, pot stills, to oh. do um, tray extractions, both our Gin 33 and our Gin 1. Mm-hmm. Gin 1 is kind of a unique gin where we actually pull out oils and tannins that are non-volatile during the steam extraction. Okay. Run, walk me through that if you don't mind. What? Uh... Well, the process is secret. Oh, God, that's the C. Okay. No. Never well, mind. It's, it's actually a product where we've created a style that no one else has done mm-hmm. at all. It's, it's completely unique. Oh, wow. So that's something that we can do. And the result is a much more herbaceous and savory mm-hmm. uh, culinary style gin than, say, right. a light, you know, aromatic in the dry style. Mm-hmm. And so, w- w- how does that contrast with the other gin that you have then? How do you... Our other, other gin is what I just call like, you know, a, a well-made craft version of a dry style. Okay. I'm calling it Portland Dry because... <laughs> Portland rain, it rains all the time in Portland, so Portland Dry is kind of funny to me. Yeah, so ironic you would call it that, yeah. Uh, we use that word around here a lot, so I'll be careful. All right. And, 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 and you just you have whiskeys now in barrels that you're aging? and Yeah, right now we actually released our first whiskey last holidays. Okay. Uh, you know, a bourbon we sold out, of course. Yeah. And currently in the barrel we have rye whiskey, a couple styles of bourbon, a couple styles of single malts, a couple smoked malt bourbons. Wow. Uh, also, some of our Wildcat, which is a, a unique spirit, malted barley and sugarcane. Oh, okay. And is that your unaged product? or uh, well, do you Unaged and aged. Okay. I mean, if you're going to huh. create a whole new category of something, <laughs> yeah. you can do whatever you do want. Do whatever you want with it. Well, There's spe- no preconceived notions about how this is supposed to taste. Right. And speaking of age, like uh, Tad of Ransom Spirits brought back Old Tom Gin, which is an mm-hmm. age-style gin. Yeah. So... There is so Although many, you can't say aged <laughs> on your label. Can't say aged on your label, but there are so many, you know, so many ways of, you know, you know, creating new spirits, creating, yeah. you know, new flavors, which, you know, being the small guys, we can actually play, play with and explore mm-hmm. those. So what was it like getting started with vodka then? Because a lot of people, I would imagine, think of vodka as just being, you know, it's a neutral spirit that makes orange juice taste better or <laughs> that makes dry martini really dry and flavorless but you actually make several kinds of vodka right. what do you do to try to differentiate vodka and prove that it can have more depth than just kind well, of what people are used to i know a lot of people just think of vodka as like a stepping stone to whiskey mm-hmm. i actually came out of the 90s i drank vodka i enjoy <laughs> vodka i think i've mentioned earlier that you know vodka is like a good loaf of bread you know yeah. you know it's not the star of your meal but you still want it to be good mm-hmm. now i've always you know, because I've always respected vodka, we've always taken a lot of effort in the distillation process. I mean, there are two ways to kind of, you know, produce vodkas. One is to focus on the distillation side of it, and one is to focus on the carbon side of it. Um, we've actually stopped even charcoal filtering our vodkas because we've oh, gotten really? so confident on just the distillation methods we use. Mm-hmm. And I think you're going to start to see from ourselves and other craft distillers an exploration of a flavor-positive vodkas. If you have the right still, you can still distill to 95% and leave a flavor. And I think the best example of that is a partnership we've started with this company called Red Terra. They're importing a very nice Blanco tequila from Mexico. Hmm. And then we get this, and we actually, using our Christian Carl, distill a vodka out of it. The result is a vodka that has this beautiful tequila nose, right? But a vodka body. Wow. Completely legal vodka by the U.S., you know, the standards of identity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but once you have the right equipment, you're like, hey, wait a second. Vodka doesn't have to be neutral. Neutral is just the easy way out. Okay. Just raise it to as high as you possibly can and take it off and... Yeah. And and kind of a side note, I mean, neutral spirit is like one of the biggest myths out there it's just a bureaucratic definition that says if you distill to 95 percent, the government considers it neutral okay have you ever had everclear mm-hmm. that has Sadly. a na- nasty awful taste well guess what by the legal standards that's a neutral spirit okay so <laughs> so clearly you can my taste buds would disagree with that yeah exactly but clearly right. that people you know because most people don't think about vodka mm-hmm. they don't understand that actually it can be a nuanced spirit think of it so vodka has a possibility to to basically be like a light brandy if we want it to be but end of the day, the truth is, whiskey is king. Yeah. Whiskey will always be king. The hardest to make, the most expensive. So I'm really <laughs> proud of my vodkas, but I just can't wait for the whiskeys to get out of the barrel. <laughs> I bet. And how long will your whiskeys be sitting in your barrels, if you don't mind my asking? Um, I'm playing, like everybody else, with younger mm-hmm. whiskeys, like one year in small barrels. Okay. But ultimately, the, 
you know, the traditional whiskey press is probably not going to respect, you know, anything that's not, you know, two years in the 53-gallon barrels or longer. Okay. So that's going to be the most interesting thing is whether we can redefine whiskey as an industry. Mm-hmm. If you're familiar with winemaking, uh, Beaujolais, if I'm saying it right, you oh, know, yeah. the young wines. Right. So a winemaker who's going to sell something young treats the process very differently mm-hmm. versus the one that's going to be in the barrel for like five years or whatever, whatever the number is, two to three years. You know, I'm not a winemaker. But I think in whiskey, I think we can find styles that may taste better young or even hmm. give better flavors. And it's not that it's impossible. We just think, oh, Kentucky does it this way. Yeah. So that must be the only way. Well, they just can't turn on a dime, but, you know, it is a holy grail to make, you know, younger spirits that are delicious. Sure. But until we've actually proven we can do it, mm-hmm. you know, it's just a goal. Okay. Gotcha. But that is an interesting point. If you try to make a whiskey or a bourbon whose mash bill was designed to be aged for five or ten years, mm-hmm. obviously, if you bottle after one year, it's going to taste very juvenile. Versus right. if you actually start with a new recipe and think, okay, how do we get kind of some of these flavors that you traditionally try to age out, how do you just try to exclude them from the very beginning? Then you can start thinking about recipes designed to be aged for a shorter amount of time. Yeah, and I think if, you know, if you distill, you can say, hey, you know, maybe if I'm going to age a long time, I'm going to do a really deep, rich pot distillation, leave some, you know, thick flavors in there, might be hot, and that'll be great flavor in five years. But maybe I'm going to, you know, think more in a brandy metaphor Hmm. if I'm going to make a young spirit based on grains. Interesting. And, you know, I... That's a part of this, you know, whether we're going to be successful or not, I'm not sure, but I have intuitions that, you know, there's something I want to explore here and let's see what we can do with it. <laughs> well, so how important is the bull run water to your, your spirits? Do you treat it very much or I, I know it's highly regarded as being some of the cleanest water that you guys have coming here in, into your municipality. I, I love the water here. Obviously yeah. we have, you know, we're a, you know, a, a strong area for craft brewing mm-hmm. and the craft brewers love the beer. I'm sorry. Well, the, they love, <laughs> they the, love beer, the beer, beer yeah. and the water. <laughs> and the water. <laughs> so the water, I mean, for those who don't know, you know, it's, it's rainwater collected on Mount Hood. Mm. So it comes in really soft, <laughs> not very minerally. So we just take water from that reservoir and just put it through charcoal to remove, you know, a little bit of, you know, a little bit, whatever, you know, picks up along the way. Yeah. But it's also very different than um, other waters, you know? So I think, I think it's good, but I think it's also going to determine the styles we make here. Mm-hmm. I'm always, I don't know if I can go off on a story, but I'm always sure. fascinated by the, the Japanese whiskey story. Because what happened was some people making Japanese whiskey, you know, these, uh, I think the founder of Nika Whiskey, you know, went to Scotland somewhere in 1910s, 1920s, learned scotch making, came back to Japan, tried to make scotch, and said, I can't make scotch. <laughs> I can't duplicate what they're doing in Scotland. Yeah. But then he said, well, why don't we just figure out what the best we can make? And now Japanese whiskey is well-respected. So I think hmm. in places like Oregon or wherever there else is craft distilling, people are going to, you know, they're not going to try to make scotch or bourbon. They're going to say, what's the best, you know, whiskey we can make here? And, you know, I think there'll be subtle subtle differences in styles mm-hmm. that, you know, hopefully will come out of that. Yeah, but it's a true Portland whiskey. It's a, it's a, It shouldn't taste like a Kentucky whiskey. It wasn't made in Kentucky or it shouldn't taste like a scotch. It wasn't made in Scotland. It was made here. It's in the barrel influence is because of your unique climate here. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it should, it'll it'll taste like what a whiskey from here should taste like. Right, and I don't think the we were not going to taste like the best Kentucky whiskeys, mm-hmm. but then I think eventually we're going to have some great whiskeys yeah. that Kentucky can't duplicate. And they're not going to taste like yours exactly. Yep. <laughs> I, I would like to know why is soju? What made you kind of want to go off in that direction? That's um, such a that's such a fun idea. Well, so uh, Ken Kawamoto, uh retired. <laughs> executive from a Japanese sake company. Yeah. It was his dream. And he said, hey, I, I used to work at you know, a sake plant in California, and they could never export the sake back to Japan mm-hmm. because the parent company said the Japanese farmers would be up in arms if they tried to bring <laughs> in a, a sake made not in Japan. But since we're okay. an American company, so it was his dream. Yeah. And I was like, well, I don't know how to make sochu. <laughs> and he says, oh, I just, just, just learn how to do it. Just, just learn, learn how, how to do just it. Just learn okay. how to do it. I'll send, you, I'll send you some translations of some, you know, some textbooks. <laughs> okay. And, and to me, this is kind of what, you know, to me, this was kind of what craft is about. It's like, oh, that sounds fun. Mm-hmm. And it's also, it actually helped, I think, my education as a distiller in that I had to explore completely other methods and, you know, kind of models of fermentation. Yeah. So the Japanese don't have malt. 
So they get the enzymes that do the sacrification by growing the koji fungus on a bed of like dry rice. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's it acts like the malt, but they don't use malt. And so huh. right now we actually have cedar boxes where we do this style. And yeah, I learned how to make soju. I <laughs> it's kind of like going back to when you first started. Like, I have no idea how to make this. I have to figure it out from step one. It's an entirely new process. Exactly. And you know, and and one thing that uh, Ken, who was you know, you know, running this project, said to me, you know, that thing about ancient tradition and master craftsmen. He said, we know it's all bullshit. <laughs> yeah. But but his point was, it's not about because he respects Nico whiskey. He said it's not mm-hmm. it's not about necessarily like we've always done it this way it's about hey we want to make something good right you know we want to make it honest we want to make it you know something we can do with pride so really what matters is you get there you can tell people how you did it so it's always going to be a mix of traditional techniques modern thinking and innovation hmm well transitioning to not what's in the bottle, but what's around the spirit. Can we talk a little bit about your bottles? I'm always fascinated just about bottle design. How did you come up with these designs? Are they are they your own unique runs, or did you just use something that a glassmaker had available? Well, I mean, we started with no money. So literally, our only option was, hey, what's a, what's a glass bottle that's affordable and available? Okay. And so in Oregon, that means wine bottles. Yes, okay. Because you say your bottles look very much like a wine bottle. And so we're actually, I mean, after 10 years, we're finally at the point where for the stuff that we're going to send out of state just because of what people expect, it's time to, you know, get some more spirit glass. Mm. You know, to maybe maybe spruce it up for the Sunday best and make it look <laughs> a little sharper. Okay. Because that, that is a reality. I remember, I think when we first started, I was in a liquor store and my product was on the shelf. Yeah. And then someone saw one of our labels and they said, look at this. It looks <laughs> like they slapped the labels on themselves. And, and I didn't say anything. I was like, well, yes, we did slap <laughs> yeah, these on ourselves. That. Yeah. That's so craft of them. It looks like it was hand applied. It's I amazing. <laughs> I don't, but I don't know if they were yeah. actually fans of that. I think it was more, okay. <laughs> more derision, but it was like, okay, mm. you know, you know, it was a matter of necessity. Okay, right. So, you didn't have an expensive label <laughs> when no. you first started. And I, so I think there's, there's always going to be people People who are going to seek out something, and they're not—they're going to look past the packaging, and they're going to find quality. Mm-hmm. And if you want to make money, you might have to think there's a larger market where you—you you do have to consider the packaging. But as long as it's not bullshit, I mean, most of the designs are ideas I've had. And then early on, it was like you know, if I see someone at the bar late and now the portfolio, I'm like, are you an artist? Do you work for booze? Okay, you yeah. Know? And just kind of like start definitely start with like a rough a rough idea. Mm-hmm. But my marketing friends were like, you need brown equity. You need unity. And I'm like, okay, we'll give you a little <laughs> bit of that just because it might help me make a living, but just All a little right. bit. Just a little bit, yeah. <laughs> well, so do you, for your spirits, did you kind of think about how you intended them to be used? Did that influence your packaging designs? Like a lot of your bottles have high necks, which I know is prized by bartenders because it's something that's easy for them to grab. It fits in a well. Did any of that influence your decision or was it just simply a, we need a bottle and we need it to be available and... Yeah, there wasn't that much thinking going into it. Yeah, okay. I mean, but I do, I I think of our bottles like record labels. It's like, I want this to evoke what I think vodka should look like. I Mm -hmm. want this to evoke what I think gin should look like. Yeah. You know, and and we should have a little bit of fun with it. Hmm. But there was no focus groups. (laughs) (laughs) No focus groups. No no A-B testing or anything like that? No, no, no. So did you work with, for your labels, did you work with a design company to help you come up with it or... No, you, no, no. I just, I just sketched some stuff on a napkin. Yeah. Like, well, if you take our first bottle, the New Deal Vodka, I had a friend who was a good designer and he threw out a bunch of ideas and it was all like, this all looks kind of markety. And I said, can you just put the words New Deal and Vodka on there? <laughs> and, he, and he did. And I'm like, all right, we'll just start with that. We'll okay. just keep it simple. There we go. <laughs> I have a printer. We can print that out. No problem. Oh, we used actually our very first runs were done on label paper on a laser jet. Oh, really? <laughs> was it? Yeah. But you know... There is a certain aesthetic, you know. I, yeah. I mean, there's a part of me that I just want to roll out of bed, you know, throw on, you know, throw on some jeans and a t-shirt and just walk out in the world. Another part of me is like, hey, people do judge aesthetics to a degree. So mm-hmm. it's always the tension. Yeah. So it's, it sounds like a lot of what you're saying is, you know, to you, authenticity is very important. Obviously, mm-hmm. that's why you're, you're no bullshit and all that kind of stuff. And that, that's really what you want to evoke. My labels aren't trying to hide anything. I'm not trying to razzle-dazzle you with marketing. Judge me by what's in the bottle. To that end... Kind of what's your taste making process? How do you make sure that what you're putting into that bottle is something that consumers will respond to? Do you just trust your own palate or do you get uh, 
tasters in here to see did I get enough ginger in this liqueur? You know, how do you make sure you're not just making 10,000 bottles that only you are going to like? Or do you not really worry about that kind of stuff? I, I think you have to go back to the idea of a chef-owned restaurant. If the person making it doesn't trust their own palate, I mean, in a sense, you make something bold. Like when I was growing up, we had four beers, American, German, Japanese, and Mexican. Okay. And now we have 100 stouts. Now, those 100 stouts, are they going to be commodities in every bar? No, they're going to have bold flavors, and then they're going to have strong fans. I, I think I just have to – well, if I can't please myself, then it's kind of a – I guess I'm not even necessary. I mean, <laughs> someone else can make products that please the market. Yeah. So I think it's like the chef-owned restaurant. You have to please yourself and then hope. And I think it's not that unfair to say, you know what? If I think this is really good, this is probably going to resonate with other people. And I, I think that's a that's a, a good approach to craft. Mm-hmm. Now, once once I find something that I really like, you know, I'll let other people taste it. You know, and that'll give me some some confidence. Okay. Like, hey, am I crazy <laughs> or is this really good? <laughs> well, and good I, to get I, someone else to come in and give you a little bit of feedback on it. Yeah, and I guess one way of looking at it is like, hey, there, here's 10 things that I really, you know, can I swear on this show? Sure. That I really fucking like. Okay. <laughs> you know? And then I guess just the, the business side of me says, okay, of the 10 things that I really like, what are the two or three things that, you know, might overlap with consumers? You know, and just mm. to be smart, it's like of the things I like, what, what can I actually make a living off of? Our sochu will probably sell in Japan. Whether it will sell much here, I'm not sure. Yeah. But that doesn't really matter. But we still have to make some things that people are going to like. So you still got to play mm-hmm. in the major categories, the gins and the whiskeys and the vodkas. Yeah. Hmm. So kind of changing gears here. You're still... Is very beautiful. Well, <laughs> it's, thank it's, you. It's, it's quite the centerpiece as you walk into your facility. Mm-hmm. Where did you get it from, and how did you pick it out? How did you know that this was the right still for you? Because for a lot of people who are just getting started, that's going to be the single most e- expensive thing that they buy besides rent on their building or, or payment on their building. How did you find this still, and who did you work with, and how did you know that this was the right one for all that you needed it to do? A still is like is like a drink. The one in your hand is the right still. <laughs> Well, we had been working with like homemade, small scale, you know, locally welded together, you know, pieces of equipment. So yeah. I, I understood a lot about the basic structures of stills. So when we had an opportunity through a distillery that went out of business to get their still, I mean, I'd been, I had been, you know, because we're colleagues, like I've been around the country looking at other stills. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. There was probably a few stills that would have been the right still, but I just knew from experience that, okay, this is going to fit our capacities. It's a Christian Carl, 450 liter still, has a brandy column, two vodka columns, gin basket. Hmm. But we also run, you know, some stainless steel with um, copper coiled little gin stills we've made. We still run a a 900 liter pot still that I had made locally, which, you know, isn't, isn't as pretty as the Christian Carl and it does work too. I mean, they're almost like kitchen knives. Like you have different knives for different purposes. Yeah. I mean, I was lucky enough that when the opportunity came up, I knew enough about stills to be like, yes, this one will do the job. Mm-hmm. But there are there are certain styles of rum that I wish I had an lambic still for. Oh, okay. And I could create certain flavors that I can't create on this. Mm-hmm. Every still has a flavor profile. Interesting. So, talk to me a little bit about your tasting room that you have here. How does that kind of work into? your brand and how you get how you introduce people to it and just kind of in, into your whole business plan is it do you keep it open most of the days of the week is it just a weekend only venture well so in oregon they just changed the laws a couple of years ago where we could sell off site oh okay but, but we are we are and i'm kind of actually missing my, my memory of the history is kind of like a little shaky um, no problem but so let me restart that over again so the tasting room you know because of Steve McCarthy in the 80s, you had the, you know, the right to have a tasting room in sales. We didn't actually mm-hmm. have a tasting room for the first couple of years of our existence because we were in a little 10 by 12 foot room. And we, okay. we really... <laughs> where are we going to put this table? <laughs> like, you know, where it, it was something? a lot of infrastructure to, yeah. to build a tasting room. And when, I first, you know, when Distillery Row was first forming, um, we got a license to sell. Mm-hmm. And I remember some Sundays when no one would come in. Okay. I mean, no one knew we were, we were in existence. I mean, the industry was almost under the radar. Yeah. And it's slowly over time. But, I mean, the beer makers and the winemakers will tell you that, I mean, this is a way to directly engage the customers. Mm-hmm. We can't, you know, we can't buy the supply chain. We can't buy shelf space. We can't, you know, force our way onto center bars and, you know, Las Vegas casinos. So, it is one drinker at a time. So, the tasting room is a way for people to come in and find you and experience you and know you. Mm-hmm. you know, taste the things. 
I mean, I guess one drinker at a time is a reality. Is you have to when you're small, you have to you know find a way to meet your people directly and give them an opportunity yeah. to discover you. And people can come in here and literally meet you and yes. meet the guy who made the product and. You can, they can ask you anything they want and it really does create that connection with them like I, I know the guy who made this right. bottle of whiskey and I think we're kind of blessed because we have this you know nice tasting room we have a bar mm -hmm. you walk in but you turn to the right the still is right there yeah. the production's right there and you literally can see it being made I mean everything bottling line over there the barrels stacked up it's almost too cozy when I'm trying to get work done on a Saturday. But, <laughs> and people but, keep coming. But I love talking to people. Yeah. And I, if you, you know, if you don't like people, then you're in the wrong business. Mm -hmm. It's a hospitality business. Did, did you work with an architect to, to get this all laid out just like this, to get the flow? Or did you have a vision for when we finally get to upgrade from this 10 by 12 room, this is the way it's going to be laid out? Well, I mean, a lot of my decisions are just based on what is the most practical thing I'm going to do. Yeah. You know, and I, I have my own ideas. So, I mean... We had an architect help us lay out sort of how the production facility was going to be. Okay. But tasting room was like, well, yeah, we'll just have the tasting room. We'll throw it over here. <laughs> Put it near the door, wide open table, a big bar space for people to come up to. Right. And I think the yeah. next step is we're actually going to build a more, a more formal bar, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's a little more, you know, personal, you know, clean it up a little bit. But, yeah. But I like it. You know, people come in here and it's no doubt it's a production facility. Okay. Yeah. But I think everyone wants a tasting room, but I think to your point, it, it's, it's tough. It, it is another thing for you to manage from just a management of running a business perspective. You have to have staff here running it while, cause you're off running the still and making the product and everything. So it is another area of overhead. It, it's very important. And it does get you in touch with your customers and bring in new customers, but it is also another thing to manage. Well, we are, we are lucky. Like, I mean, being a pioneer, like 2004 licensed, and I don't yeah. think there was more than 20 other quote unquote craft distilleries because it wasn't until 2007 I heard the number of 100. Okay. Um, so, but kind of to what you're saying, we were lucky that we had an opportunity just by being there, you know, early to organically grow into all these things. Mm -hmm. We didn't have to, like people do now, build everything at once. Yeah. It became, oh, this is a natural next step. We're big enough. We have enough portfolio. Let's mm -hmm. open a tasting room. Okay. Because I guess, yeah, 2004, like you were saying, nobody knew to go to a distillery to taste something. Nope. It just wasn't part of the experience. Mm -hmm. So kind of, you know, some wrap-up questions here, just sort of uh, on, on a looking back kind of perspective. Do you remember the first time you actually fired up your production still for the first time? Was it kind of an, oh, shit moment? <laughs> like, we're really going to do this? this? is becoming very real. We're going to be ready to make a product and put it in a bottle. Do you remember well, what that experience was like when you first flipped the switch? of turning on the still for the first time. And this was back before I really had no, no one else to experience to lean on. Yeah. My first thought was, is this fucker going to blow up? <laughs> yeah. And I remember actually being like turning to uh, a Matthew, a friend of mine who was like uh, my first business partner who helped me start this before, you know, he had a kid and, you know, mm -hmm. needed some time off from working for free for seven years. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I remember looking at each other going, do we know what we're doing? <laughs> yeah. and, and, I, I, and I think it was a fair question. You know, there are some safety issues in this industry and sort of like the pioneer spirit is great. But, you know, looking back, I'm like, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go I. <laughs> yeah. but, they got all those welds held and yes. everything. Yeah, yeah. no, there was, there was, it was more of like, yeah, are we safe? I think was the, the first thought. Okay. But in <laughs> terms, in terms of, uh, in terms of like, oh, we're making product, it was just the beginning. There was no, there was no clear idea that there was even a financial future in it. So it wasn't like, hey, we're going to be on market and look at craft distilling. We're going to be part of this. Yeah. The industry didn't exist. So it was literally like, okay, now we have to learn how to make things. Okay. It turned on. It worked. Thank God. And now let's actually figure out what we're going to be making in here. Exactly. Yeah. And we realized the still wasn't that good. And then so we okay. actually, six months later... We're building new still designs. Oh my gosh, really? <laughs> We're like, this still is actually not good. Not the greatest, yeah. Well, that's good you had that flexibility. You weren't tied into a huge expensive right. piece of equipment. You could, okay, throw that one away, get a new one. Let's try something else. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so if you could go back in time and talk to yourself 15 years ago and say, you're not going to learn this one thing for 10 more years mm -hmm. or so, but you need to know it now would be very helpful. What would be that one thing if you, could, if you wish you had known then what you know now. What, what's one thing you wish you knew? Well, I wish I knew everything. <laughs> okay. Um, but I wish I knew that it was actually going to work. You know, I mean, at each step of the way, it was sort of like, yeah, this is fun. Let's keep going. This is fun as we grew. But if I could go back in time, I would say, 
fuck it, sell the house, yeah. buy a big still, buy a building, and just get going. Okay. Just do it. I mean, just get in there and go all in. Yeah. Don't worry it's about gonna it. It's going to work and don't worry about it. It's going to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very cool. Well, being on the production side of things now, you, you make a product that is sold in liquor stores, bars, restaurants. Has it changed the way you go to those places? Can you go out and have a nice night at a restaurant or are you always looking behind the bar and kind of wondering, oh, there's new deal here. Why is this on the menu and not us? You know, I've never, I've never actually sweated that too much. Yeah. I mean, especially locally because I know a lot of the bartenders and I'm not about the hard sell or, you know, like, oh, I'm not going to frequent you if you don't carry me. Mm-hmm. I'm just in the same way that I want to offer quality, I'm going to go out to the bars that have quality and enjoy myself. And again, I, I look at it as a long game. You know, it's like, I'm here. If if our quality and reputation is there, then our products are going to get to where they need to go. Okay. You know, just you know, telling someone they need to carry us for what because we're local. No, if if we're the right quality, we'll be the right choice. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, Tom, last question. Someone goes. Someone comes to your tasting room. They go to a liquor store. They pick up one of your bottles. What's a recipe that they should use for that they should use your spirits? And can you share at least one recipe with my listeners? Actually, one of my favorites. And just because I'm thinking a lot about cocktails is our ginger gym giblet. Oh, wow. Okay. Let me say that again. Ginger gin gimlet. Ginger gin gimlet. Got and, it. <laughs> and I, I, I'm always fascinated by what makes a good cocktail. But this is our gin and our ginger liqueur and lime juice. Also with a honey psalm drinking vinegar. Oh. And so it has this nice, spicy, tart, sweet with sour and it's huh. balanced out and it's delicious and it's refreshing. Sounds amazing. And you know, I like, I like balanced cocktails, which is we're also lucky to be in the middle of like a craft cocktail revolution, which really is just about, Hey, it's not just sweet. We're actually going to bounce out flavors, mm-hmm. traditional sweet, sour, bittersweet, things of that nature. Yeah. It's not about hiding imperfections in the spirit anymore. It's actually about bringing out certain flavors and right. what you're mixing. Yeah. And you have such a portfolio, so many interesting flavors just within your own line, you can play with each one. That's pretty cool. I wish I had a three-year bourbon I could drink. Okay. <laughs> That's instead the of, only instead thing. of a two-year bourbon. <laughs> well, Ty, where can people find you? You know, if people want to know if their local liquor store is carrying you, is, do you have a website? Where should people go to find information well, about you your always, brand? Well, you can always go to our website, newdealdistillery.com. We have a Facebook page. Who doesn't? Although <laughs> next year, the new kids will have some completely other social yeah. media. And I'll oh, find out about it. Oh, you still use that? Great. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> MySpace will come back. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, we're, in, we're in Oregon right now. We're in Washington. We're in Chicago. We're in Colorado. We're in Vermont, just getting into Utah. There's a few bars in Singapore and Shanghai. You can get our products. So, if you, you know, also yeah. Calgary. Okay. So, if you're in Singapore, Singapore, Shanghai, or Calgary, <laughs> look for New Deal. <laughs> yes. And throughout the Midwest. Yeah. All right. Well, Tom, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for speaking with me today. Thanks, Zach.